The heart, said Pascal, has its reasons of which reason knows nothing. Well, if I know anything, then I know we ought to learn to listen to our heart. That's reasonable. I'm Rob Mike Foyer, and this is The Jewish Story. Don't touch that dial. We interrupt your regularly scheduled programming with a taste of Jewish Story Live. Call it Rob Mike's favorite hits taken from my live history class. If you want to join the class, this year we're going back to the book of Daniel. We're starting at the beginning. Every Sunday night, 8 to 9 Israel, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Standard, starting at August 28th. You can go to jewishstory.co and scroll down to see Access the Jewish Story to find the details, or you can send me an email at ravmikefoyer at gmail.com. Happy to share with you what I know. Meanwhile, enjoy Spinoza, the Converso of Reason. As always, I want to thank the Pardes Institute, P-A-R-D-E-S.org.il, for helping to make this class happen. Okay, good morning, everybody. So we, last week, finished, well, finished, actually, we, we, um rounded out the story of the Sabbatean sort of uh, messianic revolt. What I want to do this week is introduce Baruch Spinoza. Um, and not just in the details of his life, which are unfortunately few that we actually know, but to consider him as one of the foundation stones of modernity in general, and Jewish modernity in particular, and to think a little bit about, um, remember, Baruch Spinoza dies in 1677, Shabbat Tzvi dies in 1676, although a more significant date for Shabbat Tzvi is, of course, his heresy, which happens in 1666. So despite the fact that, um, well, let's do it this way. Raise your hand if you feel like you knew something about Baruch Spinoza coming into this class. Right. Raise your hand if you think you felt like you knew something about Shabbat Tzvi coming into this class. So it's a little bit more interesting. Okay. I'm always curious because, depending on who you ask, Spinoza was like this great heretic who had this tremendous impact on Jewish and, and human history, or, and I've never heard of Shabtai Tzvi, or, oh, you know, Shabtai Tzvi was this tremendous sort of false messiah and the impact on Jewish history, etc. Who's Baruch Spinoza? Um, and, but, but the reality is, is that they were contemporaries. Um, and what I want to do before we go into the details, and then depending, because his story is actually not so heavily detail-laden, um, depending on where we get to, what I'll do at the with either end or second half or last third, depending on the timing, um, is lay a little bit of the groundwork for the emergence of Hasidut, um, which uh, I think in many ways is uh, another yet another response. Remembering that our whole task right now is trying to understand the Jewish encounter with modernity. We've, we've taken a significant step out of what could be called early modernity. We're no longer in the 16th and early 17th centuries. We're dancing around the edge of the 18th, and the 18th century will offer the full-scale encounter with modernity. I mean, depending on where you want to put the culmination, perhaps with the French Revolution or et cetera. But just by way of framing, I want to throw out a couple of theological terms that people shouldn't be too nervous about. Right? They are theism, deism, and pantheism. Um, so theism is a general belief in God, but specifically in God as other. That there's somehow a distinction and a division, usually argued to be unbridgeable, between God and creation. This may sound familiar to you because it's a very classic Jewish attitude, right? There's God, there's creation, and even though God does interact with creation, as we'll discuss when we get to Spinoza, 
It's a challenge to understand how. On some level, never the two shall meet. Right? God is infinite, unknowable, transcendent is the philosophical word which is often used. Now, I'm guessing that whether you're aware of it or not, you all have been infected with chassidut. So you have very easy answers for how to solve the problem of the unbridgeable gap between the human and the infinite. But let's just remember that here in the late, 16th, sorry, late 17th century, a theist position meant that there's creation, there's God, there's revelation which links them, but other than that, that's it. Because God is unknowable. Infinite. Transcendent. Right? Now, theism sounds like a nice fancy term, but in um, Europe, theism meant a belief in the God of the Bible. And specifically in the Christian Bible. So the two critical ingredients there are going to be that God communica communicates with humanity through revelation and interacts with history through miracle. We've had this discussion a little bit before, if you recall, with the Maharal and the impact of the Copernican intellectual revolution on the understanding of the Bible. Just remember, right? Copernicus says that actually the sun is at the center and not the earth, right? And that seems to cause some problems with classic Ptolemaic astronomy and the church's understanding of how the world goes around. And specifically, we saw the discussion around this, this, that scene in the book of Joshua where he says that the sun should stand still over the Ayalon Valley. Wait, Shemesh Begivondom. The sun should stand still over Givon and the moon over the Ayalon Valley, right? And the scientist saying to him, sorry, the sun doesn't stand still. Hopefully this should sound familiar for those of us who have been together. If not, we've already seen a scientific challenge. Notice. But on some level, that science has been divorced from the metaphysics behind it. It's just simply a, me a mechanical issue. It's a mechanical issue, and the Maral solved it. How he solved it, I don't want to go back into that. But it didn't fundamentally argue that God doesn't do such things. It just meant there was some way we have to understand it. It's a challenge to Scripture, but it opens the door to a, what will be a very problematic relationship within intellectual European culture. And perhaps the best way to understand the transition from theism to deism is through René Descartes. We've brought Descartes up before as sort of the exemplary rationalist. Right? Descartes, remember, rationalist we defined as uh, a belief in innate ideas, which then can be used through one's reason to deduce the nature of existence. Right? I think, therefore I am. Descartes doubts everything that he's been taught as received tradition, until he gets back to the fact that, well, I know that I am me because I'm thinking. And then he reconstructs some way of a rational presentation of the world. But Descartes, of course, though he was viewed very, very warily by the church. In fact, I have here in my note that in 1647, um, a number of the Christian universities of Europe passed resolutions ordering their professors not to avoid publishing the name of Descartes or mentioning him in their theses, as a, and to avoid mentioning him in their views and their debates. I mean, there was already a sense that Descartes was problematic, even though he himself wrote quite a complex argument for the existence of God. Now, wh why would Descartes, and, and what was called Cartesian skepticism, the doubting of everything and the foundation of knowledge and reason, why would that be problematic for a believer in God? So that's sociologically the problem. 
because he was made to think and reason. We're going to see Spinoza will pick up on that because the systems of power and culture and rule which use religion as either conscious or unconscious tools for their power are not really fond of people who think and reason. Right? But theologically, why would they have the problem with him? You must reduce God to human comprehension or God does not exist. There is no such thing as the irrational relationship to God. Right? That's just fairy tales, says Descartes. And what happens with Descartes is we get a transition within European culture from theism to deism. Right? Deism still has that dios, has the dios, has God in it. What's the difference? <clears throat> this, if you think back to whatever age was the last time you learned European history, these were the adherents of what's known as the watchmaker god. Right? That, that they did believe, Descartes did indeed believe in God, as did Newton, another famous, or at least accused to be deist. Right? And, but what was the watchmaker god? The watchmaker god is the one who created this complex creation, indeed has that activist role in creation, sets it all up, winds it up like a watch, and then does what? Walks away, right? So that there, there's no active relationship between God and creation, not through revelation and not through miracle, which means that doctrinal religion, read in European history, Christianity and Judaism, because they weren't so concerned about Islam at that point, right? means that those religions are either complete nonsense, just made up, or a remnant of a poor understanding of the truth of religion. Now, what's the difference? Complete nonsense, you don't bother trying to purify, clarify, and salvage for modernity. But there will be a great effort on behalf of people like Descartes and others to save Christianity from itself, to, to purify through reason the wisdom which has been maintained. Because in the end of the day, without Christianity, they don't have a base culture, which is a lot of the challenge that Europe is going through today. It took a couple of hundred years at this point, 300 plus years, to really, truly undermine the cultural foundations of, of Europe. But they did it. <laughs> you know, Consistent hard work pays off. Um, so, so, so to the people sitting in this room, the difference between theism and deism may not be so pressing. But, but the, the accusation, and perhaps even the reality, is that once you take the story out of the picture, once you say that the activist God, well, we just read Parshat Yitro. What a perfect example. I didn't think about it. The beginning of, of the Ten Commandments in Parshat Yitro is what? Well, I am God that what? That took you out of Egypt. And it's a classic question. Why can God say, I'm the God that created the universe? It would be much more impressive, wouldn't it? What, what, what's the answer? It's because the truth is, it's actually not. For the human mind, it's not as impressive. It's not just that it's too abstract. That's true probably for the people at the mountain. But I'm, we're in the, here in the 21st century. I can tell you as an educator that, that, that you have to come up with some reason for existence. I mean, maybe you don't have to. I have to come up with some reason for existence, and most of my students do. And so therefore, if you're going to posit the Big Bang, or you're going to posit God as prime mover, Okay, like, really, what's the difference? Like, even the physicists today are saying, okay, Big Bang, but what banged it? Meaning, like, like, like <laughs> you, you, now that you have everything that started in this point that they call, you know what they call it? The singularity. Hmm, that sounds familiar, right? Um, everything was once one. That's a familiar question, and it's one which doesn't impose all that much on one's behavior. That's key. It's a familiar question, meaning everybody wants to position themselves 
in reality. How did this all come to be? So you have classic mythology, you have theology, you have science. On some level, they're all answering a basic human need to ground ourselves in a framework. That's fine and, and relatively easy and also a pressing need. You have to have some grounding. And it doesn't put all that much an obligation upon your behavior. Aristotle's prime mover versus, you know, uh, the singularity. What difference does that make to me when I wake up in the morning? Whereas a God that acts in history, that claims agency and, and is a character in a story, I am the God that brought you out from Egypt means, you know what happened to you yesterday? That was of cosmic significance. One of my teachers always used to say, imagine the reaction of Am Yisrael when Moshe came down from the mountain and they said, what'd you get? And he showed them a book that told them what they did yesterday. That's essentially what it says, right? Imagine the surprise of realizing that their behavior matters to God. And then imagine the pressure that falls in right afterwards. Right? And so, so therefore, it, it's critical, that introduction. I am the God that brought you out from Egypt. Not only meaning I haven't gone away, I didn't wind the world up and walk away, but also meaning that, and therefore, your actions matter. So when you take that God as character out, you move from theism to deism, you lift the burden of the significance of your action, which is why, by the way, the deists will struggle mightily and write whole tractates on moral philosophy, because they've got to come up with some reason you should be a good person other than because God said so. And those tractates will hold Europe up for another couple hundred years. But, but today, when I talk to my millennial students about the nihilism which is creeping in to their intellectual culture and the sort of pseudo-epicureanism, meaning like this idea that pleasure is a legitimate philosophical approach to life, you know what their answer was? I had this discussion with a couple of them the other day. They said, oh yeah, YOLO. And I said, YOLO? Isn't that a yogurt? <laughs> um, they said, no, you know what it stands for? You only live once. Yeah, that, yeah, I'm very impressed, by the way. I had no idea what they were talking about. But, but, as a, but as a, it's not really a philosophical sense in the sense of a critically thought out sense, but it's a cultural stance, which is like, well, okay, you only live once, so why not? So why not? Right? If, there, if there's not a grand narrative unfolding where God is an actor which creates meaning and insistence, where Jews commands upon your behavior, so then really why not? Okay, we might draw boundaries in like as long as it doesn't hurt you or it doesn't hurt me, but as we all know, those boundaries ebb and flow. Right? So, so the slide from theism to deism, next stop is atheism. Right? Which is like, what's the difference between saying God wound up the universe and walked away between saying God is dead or in fact never existed to begin with? And that's where the 19th century will go. So this is a significant background to what's happening amongst the Jews, right? So because what's happening amongst the Jews, we saw Shabtai Tzvi. Shabtai Tzvi is theist par excellence, right? God isn't just a character in the book. God is real. He's the Messiah after all, right? I mean, in his own eyes, don't get me wrong. <laughs> don't go home and say, oh, the teacher Parise said Shabtai Tzvi was the Messiah, right? <laughs> They'll start hounding me. Um, the... And in that sense, you'll notice that Shabtai Tzvi took 
the next logical step from the Torah of the Arizal we spoke about in this power of tikkun, that human action doesn't just matter. Human action is the keystone to bringing redemption. That if you want the story to, to reach the next stage, humanity on some degree has replaced God in that level of agency. And it's not an irrational deduction that he draws from the Torah of the Arizal. It's just an extreme <laughs> expression of it. And we'll see, probably not today, but going forward, how Hasidut tempered. Because, by the way, what's the gain? What's the gain of telling people you could personally bring redemption through your actions? Okay, that's, I would say, the loss. I'm going to get into moral judgments. But, but what's the gain? As a religious member, remember we said that, that this swept religious institutional life in many places. It wasn't just the nutty illiterate masses, and it wasn't just the people who had suffered under the conversive experience. There were whole boards of synagogues, rabbis by the dozen, who jumped on the bandwagon. What was the big gain? The guy walks into the shul with the letter from Nathan of Gaza, says the Messiah is coming. What does he want you to do right now? Repent. Your actions matter. That is the core battle that Judaism has been fighting since God said, I took you, I'm the God who took you out of Egypt and not the God who created the universe. Your actions matter. They matter personally, they matter historically, and they matter on some theological scale which we may or may not be privy to. The problem is, is that your, matter, your, matters, excuse me, your actions matter personally, hopefully we all believe, but as we all know, psycho-emotionally, psycho that's an ebb and flow. Depends on how we were raised. It depends on the environment in which we live. Do I really think my, matter, my actions matter personally? If I really believe that, I'd never shout at my kids. Or cheat on my taxes. Or I don't cheat on my taxes. Um, the, uh, you can draw the necessary conclusion from the previous statement. Um, the, and do, do my actions matter on a sort of a, a human scale? We've spoken about this before. This is the problem of recycling. Right? Raise your hands if you recycle. Oh, that makes me very happy. Right? And raise your hands if you think that, that it really matters. Yeah. Uh -huh, right? Because we go through the math. There are 9 billion people on the planet. Two-thirds of them have never even heard the word recycling. What's left, two-thirds of them can't do it because they don't have the infrastructure. What's left from there, two-thirds of them don't do it even though they have the infrastructure. And now the Chinese aren't even taking your bottles anymore to recycle. Who knows where they're going? Okay, we can talk about it. But you get my point. Meaning there, there's, there's a deep moral belief which underlies the action of putting the bottles in the recycling, not just a utilitarian judgment that this will save the planet. And on the end of the day, the moral belief that underlies it is that my actions matter. And frankly, if, if, if the people around me followed my example, the world would be a better place. And I think history does prove that out. But that is a, there's a certain act of faith in that. right? The, and, and then there's the whole redemptive narrative which is my actions matter, not just in my personal life, not just in the global existence of humanity, but we're going somewhere. The story is going somewhere, which is much easier to buy sitting here in the rebuilt city of Jerusalem than it would have been in the city of Amsterdam in the 17th century. Let's just remember that. So Shabtai Tzvi is the extreme version of theism, and, it, and what we would call in Hebrew, it's kilkul. It's corruption, because it goes off the rails to this belief that, that not only do my actions matter, but I am the Messiah. Remember how I told you that after he leaves, people like Avraham Cardozo and other Sabbatean prophets, who we may meet um, uh, Jacob Frank today, depending on where we get to, right, start as Sabbateans, become prophets, and almost inevitably end believing that they're the Messiah. 
And we all chuckled over that. But I just told you why. Because on some level, what it means to be the Messiah is to believe that your actions matter. I just did a podcast on Abby Hoffman. You guys remember who Abby Hoffman was? Great figure of Jewish history, if you don't think about him as such. He really was. Um, and he has a great quote, which is that he says that, you know, every Jewish man by a certain age has to decide whether to go for broke or go for the money. He went, no, he went for broke. Oh, yeah, Reuben, that was his quote against Reuben, right? Um, but meaning, you know, on some level, you're going to be the Messiah or you're going to be middle class, right? And, and, and the going, being the Messiah means that you, your actions really matter. Um, not that he saw himself as the Messiah, but there was a little bit of that in there. Oh, so that's one side of the equation. Shabtai Tzvi, we've seen where that goes, and that story's not over. So you might think, then, the solution is let's get rid of this whole theist notion, and there will be elements of institutional Jewish life that indeed look to get rid of that theist notion. Name me one. So the reform movement will, will, will water it down, right? And we'll try to sort of like remove the importance of actions. Notice that's a lot of what the reform movement will do is the non-binding actions, and, and it's much more of a Christian philosophical approach to Judaism. The other answer was Zionism, which actually upgrades the importance of actions and kills God. Tries to diffuse... Well, the classic Zionism was, a, was, a, was an anti-religious, secularist movement. Oh, no, it didn't just happen. It did not just happen to be, and that will be, that will be our discussion during the Omer. The five classes, just to do a little plug for the Omer program, my five classes during Omer, we're going to jump forward to the foundational thinkers of Zionism. Intrinsically anti-God? Yes. The state of it? Yes. I think that as a political movement, the Zionist movement was intrinsically anti-God in the classical Jewish sense. I'll, I'll back that up at length, but not right now. All right. But, so the, the other side of the spectrum for the Jewish story is going to be Spinoza. And we're going to see Spinoza will deny the significance of action through his focus on what's called determinism. And we'll get to that in, in his, when, we, when we tell the story. I just want you to understand the, the tension here. Um, and he's going to remove God as character as we'll see in his story, right? And, and, but he's not really a deist. See, because a deist still sees God as character. He just sees God as character in absentia. And there's still a relationship between God and creation. So the question will be, of course, the $64,000 question of Spinozan history is, was Spinoza an atheist? And I'll just say it now, and then I'll prove it later. The resounding answer is, absolutely not. He was something completely different. The one-sentence difference between theism and deism, a theist believes that God is separate from creation but continues to interact with it through revelation and miracle. A deist believes that God created the world but no longer interacts with it. That's why they tended to be scientifically oriented, laws of nature. They both believe in God, as opposed to an atheist who does not. Good? They agree on the origin, they, no long, they don't agree on the ongoing relationship, and therefore the real sticking point will be revealed religion. Can you be a Christian and be a deist will be the question that revolves. That's why 
the Christian universities of Europe were banning Descartes' work. It's why Spinoza will be claimed as a heretic, as we'll see. In the Shabbat Tzu's time, it was the, it was the halachasists, the people who were wary of Kabbalah and the grandiose mythic stories, which I've been presenting to you because that's kind of how I roll, but just said, you know, how do we have a relationship with God? Through Torah and mitzvot. You want to know how to bring redemption? Do Torah and mitzvot. And this sort of like grand myth of fixing of the shattered vessels by elevating the sparks through conscious action? Feh. <laughs> it would have been the answer. And we'll get a lot of that snapback. Theists believe that God and creation are separate. God creates the world and stands in relationship to it, but really also beyond it. That, that, that transcendent element is very important. Because, I mean, as Jews, what do we call a God that you can know in absolute terms in creation? An idol. Right? Except what will happen is that what will evolve out of that is a, is a different stance, which is why it may not make sense to you because you guys are also used to what, what the, what's called the imminent God or mimali almin in the, in the Chadish, 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 I can't even speak, Hasidic language, right? A God who is imminent and present, right? God as character. So we're going to get to this. Yeah. Ah, you said the P word. I was avoiding it. I was avoiding it. I wanted it at the beginning. I wanted to leave it out there hanging. We're gonna, we're, 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 well, first we have to tell the story of Spinoza. All right. Other questions or comments before we get into the flow here? Okay. Hopefully that was completely overwhelming, and now I can do whatever I want. Even though I'm not going to go into this section on, on Descartes, I think we've said enough about him. So Baruch Spinoza is born in Amsterdam in 1632. Now at this point, Amsterdam is on one hand uh, sort of a normative orthodox community, even though orthodox is a, a sort of uh, anachronism because orthodoxy doesn't exist yet. It's a normative religious Jewish community. At the same time, it still has that stamp of a community which is made up almost entirely of conversos that themselves escaped or the children of conversos as Baruch Spinoza himself was. His father came to the city in 1627, right? He actually fled via France um, and, and was a successful merchant in that sort of cultural context that we've spoken about Amsterdam being one of the shipping centers of the world at that point, the Jews being quite involved in such a thing. His father wasn't one of the great shipping magnates and the port Jews who made their millions. He was a successful shipper of dried fruits and spices. Um, and he, we know this because he shows up as a member of the synagogue and a supporter of the Talmud Torah, where his sons received their first proper education, really probably the first Jewish education in their family since 1492, if you think about it. So there are very deep parallels to many of the American Balchuva stories in this. Um, and one of his teachers, if not directly, then certainly within the Talmud Torah, was Menashe ben Israel. So we're in, still in that time period that we've been discussing. Um, Baruch was the youngest son, by most accounts, exceedingly bright. There is a common legend out there that he was intended for the rabbinate. There's no evidence to say that that was so, other than the cultural evidence that the young, bright son was often pushed toward the rabbinate. Um, it wasn't to be, though, because in, for, in 1649, when he was, ooh, do the math, 17, his older brother Yitzchak, Isaac, died. And Isaac's role in the family, as was generally true of the oldest son, was helping his father in the business. So when his, when his um, brother died, Baruch was sort of forced by necessity 
to take his place and helping run the family business. By all accounts, it did not go well. It did not go well and may have contributed to his intellectual development. I have a quote here. He says, After experience had taught me that all the things which regularly occupy in ordinary life are empty and futile, meaning business and the stuff you got to do to make a living, and I saw that all the things which were the cause or object of my fear had nothing of good or bad in themselves. A lot of anxiety in business in general, particularly in import-export. I mean, it's, it, it's hard for, I mean, maybe some people here are involved in risky business ventures. I don't know. For me, it's hard to relate to what it would be like to take most of the money I have, put it in the hands of a ship captain, watch him sail off into the blue, which maybe I could identify where he was going on a map. But remember, once he's out of sight, there is no communication. And maybe he'll be back in three months' time with a cargo that will increase my net worth. And maybe he'll never come back at all, right? And, and, and I know well the vagaries of weather and, you know, pirates and et cetera. So like, that level of anxiety plays an important role in his development, as he's saying. Because in the end of the day, he's living this very rocky, anxious life. And what's he got for it? Dried fruits. And he's pointing out, it's not good or bad in and of itself. It's just a way to make a living. And he says, now he said nothing or good or bad, except insofar as my mind was moved by them. Notice the self-awareness. He's, he's aware of his own, we call, inner drama. I resolved at last to find out whether there was anything which would be the true good, capable of communicating itself and which alone would affect the mind. All of being rejected, whether there was something which, once found and acquired, would continuously give me the greatest joy to eternity. Now, this sounds to me like a tremendous failure in his education. Because here he is in the Keter Talmud Torah. He's a product of the great minds of Amsterdam. And he doesn't seem to find within the traditional education he's been offered a sense of something which once found and acquired would continuously give me the greatest joy to eternity. It's very interesting, and I think it bespeaks one of the great challenges of all religious education, which is that unless you buy into the grand narrative, it is very easy to reduce religious life to a list of things I have to do today. Some of you guys may have been raised that way. Right? It's one of the great challenges of commanded religious life. And it's not so easy, as we may know, to believe in the sweeping drama of human history, which again, I'm emphasizing that if you understand why the sort of unhinged Shabtai Tzvi version of Kabbalah would be so appealing, because now your actions don't just matter because some God you never met, who you never expect to hear from in this world, maybe you'll rack up the points in the next, cares about what you do. That's a nice idea, but do I experience it on a daily basis? Not only that, make it worse. What's his primary concern in this piece? It's his psycho-emotional life. Right? Anybody here ever suffer anxiety because they think God doesn't like what they're doing? I have a lot of students who have left religious life for that very reason. Because they grew up in a society which found fear and guilt to be effective tools for education. And I don't blame the teachers or the institutions because if you live in that medieval worldview where God 
God's imminence, God's reality is expressed as the angry parent, then it makes perfect sense. It's just not so psycho-emotionally healthy. And as soon as people have an alternative, many of them will flee. This, by the way, is one of the lurking questions of modernity. Remember, we're setting up the whole story of modernity. We're not going to get to it now, but we're going to need to deal with it at some point. Which is, why when the gates of the ghetto opened up in Europe, when emancipation happened, why did so many religious Jews chuck their tefillin in the river and run off to medical school? If the Torah was the revealed will of God and the greatest thing since sliced bread, how come they didn't say, ah, whew, now I can really be Jewish? That's a question that orthodoxy to this day has been unwilling to ask, much less answer. And it's, and it's right here, you just heard it in Spinoza. He's not happy. He's not happy by life making a living, even though nominally he's a part of a system which tells him that his actions matter and that he's part of a drama playing out toward redemption. Menashe ben Israel is one of his teachers. He's pretty excited about life. And he's pretty convinced redemption's coming. I gotta tell you, as an educator, if Menashe ben Israel couldn't do it, I don't think I would have had a chance. So that's an important context. So, he has this desire to find something which once found and acquired would continuously give me the greatest joy. If it wasn't religion in 17th century um, European culture, what was it? Philosophy. Because historically, philosophy has always been this sort of alternative path to equanimity and, and intellectual, if not spiritual, joy. Remembering that philosophy was a uh, sort of uh, a fellow traveler with religion at this point. We're still working within that model, which was founded way back in the Middle Ages, and co-opted by the church, that there are two paths to the same truth, reason and revelation. And that the, the, even though they may have an uneasy relationship at times, they're essentially still tools in the same quest, which is toward an eternal truth. So the gateway to philosophy, practically speaking, in his era was Latin. Right? And since most people in his era didn't actually speak fluent or read fluent Latin, and certainly not most Jews, although we know that Menachem and Israel did, he had to find a teacher. And that seems to be where things really get started. He found that teacher at age 20 when he began studying Latin with Francis van der Enden, which I'm sure I didn't say correctly. Um, Francis van der Enden was a former Jesuit priest, which right away tells you that he's on dicey ground, former priest, you know, a former Jesuit priest, which means, of course, that he was highly educated, because that's one of the real claims to fame of the whole Jesuit um, uh, order, that's the word, right? Um, he was also a notorious free thinker, even in Amsterdam, which is saying something, right? He was known, furthermore, as a radical Democrat, remembering that a free thinker might just mean leave me alone and let me reflect on the bad news of religion. Didn't necessarily mean that he drew the, con he drew the natural connection between religion and government, which is going to be critical for Spinoza's development. So he was a free thinker, Democrat, and his house was kind of a salon for all the fellow sort of secular humanists, free thinkers, and, and, and arch-democrats. This is the beginnings of secular culture, remembering that the context, the wider context of Amsterdam at the time, was that it was ruled by the House of Orange, William of Orange, who eventually became King of England, and actually not so long after this. Um, and it was ruled by the House of Orange with a, with a, a somewhat militant Protestant bent, and, and, and religion was explicitly a tool of statecraft in Europe as a whole at this point. And certainly within 
the, the, uh, the, the low countries, as they called them. So, so the, here is this former Catholic priest, free thinker, and arch-democrat. And just to give him his due, by the 1660s, he was considered a Cartesian and an atheist. At this point, the judgment on, on Descartes had been passed, and he was actually a closet atheist. And his books were actually placed on the Catholic index of banned books, right? which is kind of a real claim to fame for free thinkers. Um, he ends up being executed in France during a Republican plot against Louis XIV. That's the Sun King. Right? So he not only was a free thinker, but like I said, he drew the necessary conclusions between freedom of thought and political freedom, which is going to have a deep impact on Spinoza. Um, so we, Spinoza, kind of the, the record of him, as I said, is, is very thin, because while he lived within the Jewish community, and even afterwards, he was not seen as a significant figure. Yeah, much. This is uh, Van de Enden, this, um, the former Jesuit priest, Francis Van de Enden, who was Spinoza's first teacher of Latin, and, we, and we, we have good evidence introduced him to Cartesian thought, and presumably was the one who started him down the road to what, um, it's not my term, but what I think of as being a Murano of conscience, a converso of conscience, right? Why? Because he appears in the records, the only record we have is of the synagogue, right? His father passes away, ooh, did I write it down? I think in, uh, in, in, uh, in 1652, um, I didn't write the exact, it's in the early 1650s, his father passes away, which ends up putting a further burden. He, he's going to run the business, he's also responsible now for his younger brother. The, his father left the business in significant debt, and Spinoza, by all accounts, is not a particularly good businessman, which... It's probably because he didn't really care all that much, as you saw. Not only did he not care, he saw it as inimical to, to his desire for philosophical equanimity and joy. Remember, he wants something that is good in and of itself. Not just good because he has a psycho-emotional response to getting something or to avoiding something else. And so business is the last place he wants to be. Um, but we do have a record of him through the early 50s, 1650s, um, as a member of the community, he shows up on the tzedakah roll of the synagogue, and, and he's, even though his, you know, his contributions aren't particularly high, one could simply say that business was bad. But he seems to be playing the part of a community member. Now, why do I say that, um, that he was a converso of reason? Because by 15, sorry, 1656, he's going to be excommunicated. And in the record, it comes out of nowhere. Now, so it seems that he was living... A double life. If at age 20, which would put us at 1652, he was already interacting with this former Jesuit priest and learning Latin and all these free thinkers. And as we'll see in a moment, there were other people in his environment who seemed to be influencing him. And yet he was showing up in shul and he had his name on the synagogue roll. That means he's living a double life. And that's what I mean by that converso consciousness. And in many ways, this will become a hallmark going into modernity, right? Because identity is starting to fragment on a whole new level, right? The corporate identity, which is really definitive of the medieval, pre-modern era, collective identity, we are the Jews, we are the Christians, we are the Germans coming up soon, right? Those collective identities are being challenged by an identity which is centered in the individual. Now, I can identify with my Judaism, 
And that means I'm happy in both my collective and personal. But what happens, I wouldn't say any of you, what happens if I find myself in a community which I largely like, the social situation is fine, logistically the schools are good for my kids, there's just certain things I don't talk about. Certain beliefs I might have, certain opinions I don't share. Now if those things happen to be, I don't know, my feelings about Brussels sprouts, so then like, it doesn't really matter, right? What if they're what I think about God? Or, uh, I don't know, the nature of gender? Right? Things that are very close to how I think of myself. So I have a choice. I can leave my community and find a community like me in that respect, but I'm going to, of course, lose other things. Right? You know, that quote they attribute to uh, Professor Halivni that, that, you know, that the people I can talk to, I can't pray with, and the people I pray with, I can't talk to, right? They, they, that is a classic expression of this converso consciousness, which is I'm going to conform with outer society for some reason. Now, obviously, in classic converso situations, it was because there was a threat of the Inquisition. But my identity is formed internally, and by the way, there will always be some opposition that develops there. It is all but impossible for me to maintain core elements of my identity sub rosa and not have them come in conflict with a perceived sense of persecution, right? These ignoramuses around me who are all chasing after the almighty dollar, says Spinoza, who are happy when the ship comes in and sad when it doesn't, they don't really know, right? Now, obviously, we don't have him quoted him saying that, but I'm just pointing out to you that it's not the happiest way of being. So there's another element that tells us that he was living this life because he wasn't the only one. Juan de Prado was a new Christian. Want me to write his name down? Right? Juan de Prado was a new Christian, lived in Spain of good standing. I know he was of good standing because it said so in the paper I read, right? Juan de Prado. No, but he was, um, he was a professor of, did I write down what he was professor of? Oh, he, no, sorry, he was, he was getting his doctoral degree, meaning of medicine, um, from Toledo University. I always laugh because I'm from Ohio, so Toledo University. Um, but he, while he was there at the university, he was also a leading Judaizer. I mentioned to you guys that all through the 17th century, the universities in, in the Iberian Peninsula were sort of the heartland of um, underground Jewish culture. And he was, he was a leading Judaizer, or organizing, an organizer of the Converso underground at the university and elsewhere. Eventually, the Inquisition got wind of what he was up to, and he managed to escape the Iberian Peninsula. And, of course, where did he go? Amsterdam. His, his, his name appears on the register of the community in 1655. He shows up. He's a, he's a sensation. Sensation because of his intellectual capacity, because, of course, there were many people that he had helped along the way who made it out to Amsterdam, and because, apparently, he was just a charismatic personality. He returned, as did, did men of, many of his contemporaries, to sort of a, a full public practice of Judaism, took on the name of Daniel, but he found himself in a difficult situation not unlike that of Oriol de Costa before him, who at this point had killed himself only 15 years before. Right? Because, again, in Spain, being a Jew was an exciting life of the underground. Right? Everything he did mattered. Mattered why? Not because of some abstract system that someone told him that it mattered. 
It mattered because he felt the pressure of the Inquisition breathing down his neck. He felt the passion of the interactions with the people that he could draw a little bit closer to something that mattered to him. Right? He was fighting for existence. Sharing words of faith and inspiration is a lot more fun than throwing out your crockery when you accidentally put the wrong spoon in it. It's much more inspirational. Right? And, and so therefore, in Amsterdam, when he encounters these systems of norms, laws, articles of faith, which you have to embrace in their entirety, it's a package, package deal, to come into this community, especially because the community, of course, is struggling to normalize itself, being made of what we would today think of as bali chuva, and many of you may have experienced this, that hell hath no fury, like a bali chuva scorned. Right? There's that sense that like, we have to do it. Although the one thing, I am a Balchu, but I just want to make that clear. Uh, um, the, uh, the one thing I'll never accept is why people who are born religious think it's okay to talk in shul. That's the one thing. I'll, I, I continue to be a Balchu to my dying day in that respect. Um, the, uh, so, so therefore, there's very little room for a free thinker. I mean, medieval Judaism didn't have much room for a free thinker. Frankly, Orthodox Judaism today doesn't have all that much room for free thinkers. But... but Amsterdam, for sure, in the early to mid-17th century, had no room at all, really. Um, and that posture of the underground apparently just begins to repeat itself in Amsterdam. One, now Daniel de Predo, has a friend who becomes his opponent. His name is Baltzar Orobio. I'll write it down before you even ask. Baltzar Orobio. He's a classic um, apologist, without the negative aspects of apologists. He, he, he writes works, um, very apparently in his day, well-received works, uh, intellectual defense of Judaism, similar to, if you recall, to Isaac Cardozo, who we spoke about. This is a theme, again, in the same way that Shabtai Tzvi was the extreme and therefore the kill cool, the corrupt version. You have plenty of Kabbalists who, who are more toward the center, who are succeeding in infusing people's daily lives and actions with mystic and therefore powerfully felt meaning. In the same way, Spinoza will be an extreme intellect who you'll have more toward the center, many a rich tradition of, of sort of intellectual rigor in defense of Judaism. And uh, Balthazar Orbio is by all accounts one of them, but I only mention him here because we've got a great quote, because they were originally friends and then they became opponents once... Um, the Prado began making waves by asking difficult questions in shul, or at least in the community. He says to him, or says to De Prado, it's only to you that it so happened to be a fake Christian and a true Jew where you couldn't be a Jew, and to be a fake Jew where you could truly be Jewish. Right? He says it's only you to whom it happens to be, to be a fake Christian in a tr and a true Jew where you couldn't be a Jew, meaning back in Spain, and to be a fake Jew here where you could truly be Jewish. Right? That, that there was that inner posture of the converso whose identity was formed in opposition to the norm. And that's a very difficult thing to give up. That doesn't have so much to do with content as it has to do with posture. And I'm telling you that this piece doesn't go away easy. Once you form some sense of selfhood in opposition to the norms around you, you will have what we call an anti-authoritarian streak that you will find it very hard to shake. Um, so so um, there is an important account which links 
Spinoza and, and De Prado, because I told you the, the documentation on Spinoza's life is um, thin at best. There's an important account, which was actually discovered by researchers in the archives of the Inquisition in the 50s. Yeah, there's a whole story of, the, of uh, people like Professor um, uh, New Blanking, uh, Professor Baird, who, um, who was one of the first to actually open the archives of the Inquisition and begin to do intensive um, sort of uh, primary record research. Um, and they found there a letter from one a monk, Brother Thomas Solano y Robles, who traveled through Amsterdam in 1658. Now, 1658 is already two years after the Inquisition. We'll speak about it. But he gives the following report on the life of the conversos he found there. Because why was he there? He was a spy. He was a spy on behalf of the Inquisition, attempting to determine what was happening amongst people that they still considered to be Christians. Right? What? His name is uh, Thomas. He's a monk. Brother Thomas Solano y Robles. That for sure, you know. I'm working on my pronunciation. But anyway, he reports that he'd met both Spinoza and Juan de Prado after their excommunication, because both got the boot, right? And they told the monk that they had been observant of Jewish law, but they'd changed their minds. And furthermore, they claimed that they'd been expelled from the community for saying that the law of Moses was not true, that the soul was not immortal, and that there was no God except in a philosophical sense. The law of Moses is not true, the soul is not immoral, and there's only a God in the philosophical sense. That is classic deism. Now, except for the soul is not a moral thing. That's, that's a, a, a question there. Meaning, but law of Moses is not true because God doesn't talk to creation. Right? And, and God in a philosophical sense, we're going to see, plays itself out quite strongly in Spinoza. The immortality of the soul is a, is a philosophical point that I think it's best not to delve into right now. We may come back to it when we get to Mendelssohn, should we ever get there. So, so this basically is the sum total of documentation we have about any process leading up to Spinoza's ex, uh, excommunication. But we do know, uh, w- one last thing, and there's always a question, is thought a sin? Is thought a sin? I mean, are, are beliefs a necessary element of Jewish observance. Today, there's a lot of talk about social orthodoxy, or, or what's known in a nicer term as orthopraxis, meaning on some level, what do I care what you think about God? If I'm going to eat in your house, what I really want to know is where you buy your meat and whether you keep separate dishes. You know, and, and there is something to be said for that from a social perspective, or people who join the Orthodox world, social orthodoxy, which there apparently have been a couple of articles about it lately, um, people who join the Orthodox world because they, they want the social environment, they want the package, they see that there's a, a social fabric and the values are important to them. But if you ask them whether they believe God gave the Torah to Moshe at Sinai, they'll say, well, no, that just sounds silly to me. Well, why do you keep the laws? Because uh, it's a social norm. And generally, but not always, that means that there's a certain laxity in observance, but not always. And there are other reasons for lax. There are plenty of people who believe God gave Torah to Moshe at Sinai and still drive on Shabbat. I mean, that's like its own thing. Um, but, but there's a question. Does it matter what you believe? And by the way, lest you think that this is an abstract, if somebody gets up to Davin and Shul, and nobody looks into their soul to check their theology. But they, but, but they might want to know whether they're Shomer Shabbat or not. Right? So, meaning, there, there is actually a nafkamina, as we say, a practical outcome 
for what you say about this. And what's important is that Rabbi Shaul Levi Mortiera, we didn't speak about, right, who was really the sort of leading, leading rabbinic personality of Amsterdam at this point. I mean, we talked about Menashe Ben Israel because I, I like that part of the story. But, um, but, uh, but he is the senior chacham, as is known in that community. Um, he wrote, when he was discussing in his sort of um, drashot on the parsha, the, the Ben Sora More and the Zakin Ma, uh, Mamre, the, the, the rebellious elder and the stubborn and rebellious son, um, he wrote the following. What this suggests to us is that a sincere, sorry, what this suggests to us is that since a thought is the act of the soul and a deed is the act of the body, the sin must be graver when it concerns the more precious and important part. Meaning, worse to have a wrong belief than to do a wrong action. Because the soul is more precious than the body, he says. It's a very interesting point which deserves to be reflected upon for everybody in their own sort of uh, system of belief and action. But I bring it up to you now because on the 6th of Av, in the Hebrew year, 5416, that's July 27, 1656. The following is found in the log of the Amsterdam community. It says, Senores of the Mahamad of the Portuguese nation in Amsterdam. And note, by the way, it's not the name of the rabbi. It's the name of the Mahamad, of, of the Parnassim, which we've spoken about. At this point, it's the lay authorities with the financial and political power who really make these decisions. And the rabbi is kind of a rubber stamp in that respect. Of the Portuguese nation we spoke about, having long known of the evil opinions and acts of Baruch Disposa, daily receiving more and more serious information about the abominable heresies which he practiced and about his monstrous deeds, have decided that the said Espinoza should be excommunicated and expelled from the people of Israel. And it goes on, cursed be he by day, cursed be he by night, cursed be he when he lies down, cursed be he when he rises up, I and mean, it's... it's quite extreme. I'm not going to read the whole thing to you right now. But um, according to historians, this is actually the most extreme formulation of excommunication that you find from the community in Amsterdam. And the big question that everyone has is, what exactly did he do? What did he do to deserve, cursed be he by day, which is actually part of the normal nusach, but but, but to be completely expelled, which remember is in a very extreme sense. There is a gradation of excommunication all the way from the Gemara onwards. You know, you give the new, 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 you give the slap on the wrist, you give the sort of house arrest version, and like the sort of doomsday device is what you just heard. Now, it may be that he got the other ones and there's just no record of it. Let's just remember, history at this point is all we can access is what we call history, right? Um, but what we do know is in the end of the day, he was giving the complete ban of the most extreme kind, and yet there's no evidence that he ever did anything. Right? We have the, and he shows up in the synagogue register as a contributing, albeit minor contributing member, to the Tzedakah Fund right up till the end. Which means he, on some level he was maintaining the outward appearance of a member of the community. Yeah, a question or comment? Well, if he was that he was studying with an ex-priest, then he must have kept it awfully secret because he'd been doing that for four years at this point. And in these types of communities, it's not so easy to keep such things quiet. So not only is there no evidence that is following, there's evidence that he didn't like to speak to anybody. You know, famously, Spinoza wore a ring that said, anybody know what it said? Caute, which in Latin means cautiously. 
And into his dying day, he, he, now there's some, there is some historic pushback on this. There are some people who claim once he left the Jewish community, he tried to gather uh, sort of followers around him. But to his dying day, he almost strove for anonymity. We'll speak more about it. Right? But I, what it seems, which the only evidence we have is this letter from this monk who went to investigate for the Inquisition. What it seems was he wasn't enough of a liar to answer falsely when someone put a real question to him. And he was enough of a seeker of truth that he was going to say exactly what he thought. And that might have been too much. And, and the question here also, and it's just a question, I'll put it out there, is whether this ban was, had one eye toward the Christian authorities. Because don't forget, Protestant Christianity is the glue of society within Amsterdam now. Now, it's true that we talked about the Articles of Utrecht and how they incorporated sort of freedom of religion. But that was freedom of religion, which happens within a recognition of the supreme power of the state, which has a state religion. It's actually through most of human history, with the notable exception of America, the way in which real freedom of religion has been given has been when there's a strong, confident hegemon. That's why the, the Muslim empire at its height gave the greatest degree of religious freedom that humanity had known at that point. Well, not shouldn't say humanity, that Western and sort of Middle Eastern society had known. Because they were confident, so therefore they could tolerate a second-class status of people who want to do your religion thing, we don't have to forcibly convert you. The Protestants were quite confident in their religion, but the Jews didn't want to rock the boat. Because you start undermining the law of Moses, and you're also undermining the church. One theory is if we let this guy stay within our community and speak heresy, then the Protestants will remove their tolerance of the Jews because the Jews are always one step away from being seen as heretics by the Christians. And so therefore, we're going to show our orthodoxy. And it's something which, we're not going to go into it now, which plays itself out in a number of places in the coming intra-Jewish battles between the Reform and what will become the Orthodox movement is that the Orthodoxy in Europe will often claim an alliance with Orthodox Christianity, not like Eastern Orthodox, but with mainline Christianity by saying, you've always recognized us as a tolerated religion. These people are troublemakers, <laughs> right? These reformies are, are troublemakers. And they'll turn to Christian authorities in their united sort of religious stance. So whatever it is that he did, he gets the boot from the community in, in um, 1656. Um, and you should know that according to uh, historian Joseph Kaplan, who's one of the big historians of the Jewish community of Amsterdam, he says that between 1622 and 1683, 40 Jews, 40 individuals were put under the ban in Amsterdam. Which, I don't know if that's a lot or a little, because I don't have the comparative number. It sounds like a lot to me. Right? Um, but it, it's indicative of, of an ongoing struggle. And it also puts Spinoza in a little bit more of a context. And we do know that, um, that there was already, I have notes here that in, in, by 1662, there's a, a um, major Dutch theologian who's protesting against the right of the Jewish community to excommunicate the members of their community for their opinions. And this is going to become, when we get to Mendelssohn, we'll speak about it, this is going to become a wedge issue, as they call it, between the sort of intellectual freedom but still orthodox practicing Jews, and the rabbinic establishment. Because in the end of the day, 
if the rabbinic establishment is using the tool of excommunication to keep people in line, that looks awful lot like a suppression of religious freedom. And since you have religious freedom rising as an ideal within enlightened European society, if the Jews want entrance into the European enlightened society, they will have to prove that they are not using the tool of religious repression within their own ranks. I mean, the Jews aren't going to repress the Christians. The fact that the Christians used to repress the Jews, nobody wants to talk about anymore, right? Because they're still doing it, right? At this point in history, not now. Um, but the one thing which is easy for the Christians to point to at the Jews to say you don't belong in modernity will be the fact that you use the ban in order to enforce your religious norms. And that's a complex story that we'll speak about with Mendelssohn, but just know that this is bubbling already in Amsterdam. It's a, you know, excommunication is a tool best left unused. You know, it's better of a threat than an actual punishment. But they do it, and um, Spinoza's response, according to his earliest biographer who wrote right after his death, his response was, all the better, for they do not force me to do anything that I would not have done of my own accord if that I had not dread scandal. I gladly enter onto the path that is open to me. He was a very quiet person who didn't want to make waves. And that's one of the reasons that he chose, apparently, to live this, this life of a converso of reason. Don't buck the system. Just do what you're going to do. Think what you're going to think. And, you know, you pay your dues to shul. And whether you show up or not, of course, not everybody shows up in shul. So um, it is important to note, by the way, that um, he does indeed leave Amsterdam quite soon after, and he cuts his ties with the Jewish world and becomes very disparaging in his writings of sort of a normative Jewish religious practice, of, of most normative religious practice in general. It's not the Jews don't get any particular aim from him. Um, he, he goes the first stop. No, no, he stays within the Low Countries. He just moves out of town. I, I wrote. I don't. I actually didn't write where, he, where his first stop was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he stays. He stays because the level of tolerance within within the, the Netherlands is as good as it gets in the world at that point, certainly within Europe. Um, but what's critical sort of for, for the, a larger picture of our story is that unlike prominent excommunicates before him, he doesn't leave the Jewish fold for any other community. He doesn't join, even though he's friends with certain sort of um, nonconformist Christian sects who he maintains friendships with them, etc. He doesn't ever take baptism. He doesn't join a church. He, doesn't, he becomes, in essence the first secular Jew. One can make an argument that Baruch Spinoza is the first secular Jew. And that such a thing could have only come into existence in the Netherlands of its time because it wasn't a necessity that he join one team or the other. So, from where, from where does he go from here? So, within a couple of years from leaving Amsterdam, I have him in, uh, oh, I can't even say this, R-I-J-N-B-R-G is not a word in my language. Riesenberg. He's in another small town um, where he's grinding lenses and working on his philosophy. He lives in, in I wouldn't say abject poverty, but he, he's barely making ends meet. Um, and his, his sort of tour de force, his first major published philosophical work, is a general introduction to Cartesian thought, which his friends and students, which he did have, he did have a circle around him, um, insisted that he writes, and it's a synthesis and representation of Descartes' rationalism in a geometric format. At this point, Spinoza had decided that Euclid was the model for truth. And if people remember, some of you probably more recently than others, if you scratch back to the days of geometry, which um, it was a wonderful discussion uh, with my daughter on Friday night, who insisted that there's someone on YouTube, of course, of all places, 
who proves that four equals five. <laughs> but, 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 it's, but when she's using the language, right, in, in Hebrew, she's talking about, she's in geometry right now. She's saying he like did through a mathematical proof. And so I was trying to point out to her is that shows you how logic is not an absolute. It's just a self-referential system. If I can prove you that four is five, like stop with YouTube. Four is not five. But it was a very funny conversation. You can just picture it with a 14-year-old. Um, they, they, I tried not to get upset about it. I tried. They, so so but he basically publishes in 1663 his first work, The Principles of Philosophy of René Descartes, demonstrated according to the geometric method. And it brings him his first fame as a philosopher. And it's the only book that's published in his name during his lifetime. Because... By the way, by 1678, which is the year after he died, any book published in his name is banned and is, is, is threatened to be burned. It's important to note that. By the Dutch authorities. Yes, any book published in the name of Spark Spinoza by the year 1678, which is one year after he died and only about 20 years after his excommunication, 22 years, will be burned by the right and authority of the Dutch government. Um, which tells us kind of where he's going. So, but in, in, just to appreciate his impact in philosophy, there's a bit of a debate. You know, Voltaire spoiled the story, as is true, so, so many things for the Jews, by saying that, that, you know, no one ever read Spinoza, and even the people who read him didn't understand him, and the ones who understood him didn't actually put his philosophy in practice. And that, that quote, it's a paraphrase, but it's close enough of what Voltaire said, right? That phrase has echoed its way down through a whole tradition in intellectual history, which has pushed Baruch Spinoza to a place of insignificance. But the flip side is a quote from Hegel, who was obviously a heavyweight in European philosophy, who said that to be a follower of Spinoza is the essential commencement of all philosophy. Right? So, so it, it's a major split on how you view him. And some people claim that Voltaire never liked anything Jewish, and that was his motivation. But we'll get to Voltaire when we get to the French Enlightenment. Um, you know, it's not hard to believe. Uh, he's got a lot of evidence against him. The, so, so really, Spinoza starts making waves beyond the Jewish community, not with his classic philosophy, but with his political philosophy. Because we spoke about, again, this 13th article of the Union of Utrecht that, that promised, quote, every individual should remain free in his religion. No man should be molested or questioned in the subject of divine worship. And as the 1660s progressed, and there was a sort of rising tide of nationalist politics within the Netherlands, and together with it, conservative religion. I don't know if you're familiar, but historically speaking, nationalist politics and conservative religion go hand in hand. Um, the, he couldn't remain silent any longer because he saw that very precious freedom to philosophize under threat. And the result was the theological political treatise concerning the freedom of philosophizing in the state better known as a book forged in hell. That's what it was called almost immediately after its publication. Forged in hell together with the devil. Wait, did I, get, I, th I, th I thought I got the full quote. Ah, I'll, I'll find it for you. It's like a great quote um, about the Jew and the devil in this book. No, I didn't write it down. Chaval. Um, so basically, on one level, it's a, um, an extended plea for freedom in the civic realm. Freedom of thought, freedom of expression, and of course, most importantly, freedom of religion and philosophy. Um, and in it, Spinoza identifies the chief enemy of freedom 
as the power that superstition holds over the minds of, of men when ecclesiastical authority has power over their lives. That sounds reasonable. What's critical to understand is that in order to demonstrate this, he gives a history of what he calls natural religion, meaning Christianity and Judaism, which he defines as nothing more than organized superstition. Because they're not grounded in reason. And in this case, we have to understand a little bit of the past, because Spinoza, of course, got a classical Jewish education. And much of modern-day scholarship, much, there's a whole stream of modern-day scholarship that likes to say that one of the major influences on Spinoza was actually the Rambam, was Maimonides. Right? And in Maimonides' mind, the prophets were philosophers. It's a, it's a critical understanding. Again, the, the language might not be exact, but it's a critical understanding because Maimonides believed that the proper task of the human being was to know God. And philosophy was a tool for that, as was the Bible. And so therefore, remember, two paths to the same truth. One could understand the words of the prophets as philosophical truths in the eyes of the Rambam. Spinoza says nothing could be further from the truth. That the Bible is essentially a, a tract of political philosophy. It's about human organization. And as such, the words of the prophets may have impact in their moral value, and he does not deny that. Right? But they're rooted in imagination and not in reason. Superstition. right? If I can give you this image of the angry God in the sky, who's going to punish you if you don't listen to me, it's much easier then to organize society along a nice orderly fashion. And so long as that nice orderly fashion provides the maximum of freedom, so then fine, don't claim that it's philosophically true, just claim that it is effective. Right? Because he says that the ultimate purpose of a state is not to dominate or control people by fear, to subject them to the authority of another, on the contrary, its aim, meaning the aim of the state, is to free everyone from fear so they may live in security so far as is possible. The true purpose of the state is, in fact, freedom. Which, according to some schools of thought, makes Spinoza the first true Democrat. The, small d. <laughs> um, the, the, the problem is, what does Spinoza mean by freedom? Which is... Not a simple question to answer, but we'll, we'll get to it. For now, the, why, why is this book, the philosophical, theological, political treatise, considered to be a book forged in hell? Because his conclusion that he draws from his sort of uh, history of natural religion and his analysis of the prophets, not as revelation, for sure not, because he doesn't believe such a thing, and not as philosophical truths, sort of, cloaked in poetic language, as the Rambam would have you believe, but rather as superstition in service of political organization. Right? So his conclusion, therefore, is that organized religion is essentially based on a false conception of God, which is that God is a rational agent who enters into relationship with creation. What do we call that at the beginning of class? Theism. He says, nonsense. It may be useful nonsense if it gets people to organize, but it is not philosophically true. This is one of the reasons that Spinoza says that the Bible is essentially a political constitution. The Zionists, by the way, early Zionists, 
loved Spinoza. So much so that there was an attempt to claim that Spinoza was one of the precursors of Zionism. They, they like to hang on a few comments that he makes, one of which is to say that the, if this is a political constitution, the chosenness of the Jewish people was proven by their success in history. So therefore, you're no longer chosen once you go into exile. But he says, should the Jewish people ever return to their sovereignty, then they would be chosen again in that sense. Now that's awfully appealing to a secular Zionist. He furthermore actually says that, you know, that the Jewish people's devotion to circumcision is enough to actually carry them essentially through exile. So very interesting statements here. But not only does he sort of dismiss the importance of prophetic teachings, right, or the philosophical importance. They're important for educating the ignorant masses and sort of keeping them in line because fictional stories and imaginative images are much more effective for the average ignoramus in keeping them in line than philosophical truths. And he is an unashamed elitist. And therefore, the, the conclusion is that the Bible is a perfectly natural human document, that the five books of Moses aren't written by him, and that there might be a mosaic core, as he calls it, but they've passed through many hands and generations before they reached ours. He even calls the Bible a mutilated text, which I find very harsh. Um, he is the progenitor of Jewish biblical criticism. We generally think of biblical criticism, we, whatever. Many people generally think of biblical criticism as rooted in the Protestant tradition, right? the Wellhausen school, if people are familiar with the, the notion. But the reality is, is that there is a whole other route to it, and it's Spinoza in the, in the um, theological political treatise. Right? It, as I said, oh, we said this already. Da, 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 da. Um, ah, actually, it's, it's critical. I want to sharpen what I said about, um, what I said about uh, the Zionists. He says, like I said, that the, the law of Moses amounts to a political constitution given the people of Israel this specific historic situation. Right? And uh, it was well suited for them, but is therefore no longer binding. Notice, if you're not in the historical context, in which it was given, so why would you keep the law? But he says, moreover, if the fundamentals of their faith had not mollified their souls, meaning like, just like softened them and kept them out of desire, I would definitely believe that one day they, meaning the Jews, would reestablish their kingdom and that God would choose them anew. So there's two pieces in that that the Zionists will pick up on. Number one, it could happen again, and that re-embodiment as a political entity is actually the chosenness that the Bible is about. What's the other one? What's the thing that's stopping us? Our religion. Right? If our religion hadn't mollified their souls, meaning it's giving you some satisfaction that prevents you from the desire to re-embody yourself as a political kingdom. Right? And this is a classic, classic accusation that the, that the Zionists will level. is that It's actually religion that prevents us from returning to our land. Right? They, they, we will speak about further on. But Spinoza's not talking about forbidden or, or permitted. He's talking about uh, what we would call sort of like a, a sociological phenomenon. That, that Jews put their energy into keeping milk and meat separate, in, into sort of like checking the time that it's supposed to daven, into et cetera, et cetera. They're not going to put their energy into collective political action. Yeah, he says that God would choose them anew. Well, but you have to understand God. I mean, he's, it's a poetic. He would, choosing is, doesn't fit with Spinoza. But, but, but um, we need to actually, in the last 15 minutes, talk about what he actually thought about the world. Right? So, like I said, the, the, the political, the theological treatise 
a theological political treatise, sorry, is literally condemned as book forged in hell. It's published actually with a false cover page and is smuggled from printing presses into other countries. But it, it rocks many people's world because, because he's basically saying what a lot of people have been thinking for quite some time. He's drawing also critically the necessary conclusions between philosophy and political action. That, that the purpose of a state is, is to maintain freedom. And that it's fine for a state to use religion to maintain that freedom because he believes that the average person functions on emotion and imagination and not on intellect and philosophy, but only insofar as the result is a society in which a person is free to think. You understand? Using the myths and national religion to build the state, he says, it's not intrinsically bad. That's just what happens in history. But they need to be myths that promote freedom. There's a very interesting middle ground there, which perhaps we'll come back to when we get to enlightened absolutism. But his, you know, his really sort of great work he's known for as a philosopher, he publishes that, by the way, in, in, in 1670. Um, and from that point onward, the word Spinozist and the word atheist will become somewhat synonymous. Right? And, and it's a misnomer, as I've already sort of hinted at, because Spinoza believes in God. He just doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. He also doesn't find satisfaction in the Christian deist God who is basically half the God of the Bible. Right? He's the God who created the world, but not the God who brought us out of Egypt. Spinoza wants a God who is always present, but never in relationship. Because he believes in the sort of classic statement that all existence is one single, unique, infinite, eternal, necessary substance. All existence. Call it God, he says, or call it nature. God or nature. Right? That, that all existence, whatever is, is in God, and nothing can be or be conceived without God. By the way, you could find a very Jewish root to this concept. You guys familiar with the relationship between the name of God, I'm going to write it with a kuf because I want to erase it later, but Elohim has the same numeric value as hateva, nature. That there, there is a sense, and the Elohim is what we would today in philosophical language call the imminent aspect of God. God as experienced in the world. Spinoza just simply says, and it's a debate, by the way, he will be labeled as a pantheist. We threw out the P word earlier. Right? A pantheist, classic pantheism, is that world is God. And since world is God, there can't be God in relationship to because world is God. Which, by the way, means I'm God, you're God, it's all God. Right? And he, by the way, is also an absolute determinist. His proofs are geometric. His great work, The Ethics, is all but incomprehensible. I've tried once to crack it. It is like literally all but incomprehensible because it's, it works from, from postulate to axiom. To the, anybody here succeed with understanding it? If it were mathematics, I would find it more comprehensible. The challenge I have is its philosophy on the structure of mathematics. And that's what I find difficult, right? 
Have, have you worked with it before? Okay, great. Maybe it made sense to you. Now, yeah, there is definitely one in every crowd. He completely divorced himself from anything that you would know as religion. But, but I think he would say, if I'm going to be as so bold as to speak for Spinoza, that, that ritual, insofar as it taps into the emotive and the imaginative side, is a very effective tool for shaping society. But he felt and really feared that in the hands of ecclesiastic authority, what it became was a tool for power. And that's what the theological political treatise is about, is that, is that it, 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 it's always, not always, it's almost inevitable that once people have power over others, that things are going to go, freedom will disappear quickly. And, and since it is much easier to manipulate people through their emotions and their imaginations than through their intellect, although it's unclear with today's nature of the media whether that's any true any longer, but um, certainly in his day, so it's a dangerous tool. I mean, he, he died, he was born in 1632, he dies in 1676. So, I mean, he, he died at age 44. Um, and, and had a very, he, he, by the way, was offered in um, 1673, was offered the, uh, the, the chair of philosophy at um, Heidelberg University. Yeah, and he refused it because he didn't want to be bound by anybody else's rules. And he lived, nothing, self-trained, Self-trained, he just simply sat and thought. And, and, and the, the power of the Euclidean method, which I agree with you, I wasn't dismissing the method, I was talking about my, my inability to understand it. The power of the Euclidean method is that once you master it, there's nothing more clear in its structure and presentation. Right? But, but it's important to understand that um, this idea of pantheism, God is world, right, is, is, is going to become a debate. The word pantheism doesn't exist in the time that that Spinoza exists. It's a later challenge in, 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 in German, German philosophical movements as they're trying to sort of digest basically the inheritance of Spinoza. There will, people, there will be people who call Coleridge, right, the great sort of poet and philosopher, the, the Samuel Taylor Coleridge, will call Spinoza a God-intoxicated man. And, and the early response to Spinoza is to label him as a Jewish mystic. Because you know, to say to a Kabbalist, everything is God, is to say, well, yeah, duh. Because to make things worse, there's theism, God and world. There's deism, which is also God and world, but no interaction any longer between the two. There's pantheism, which is God is world. And then there's panentheism, which is, which is, God, which is the world in God. The other way of saying that is that world is God, but God is not world. Or if you're familiar with the Midrash, that God is the place of the world, and, world, and the world is not the place of God. Meaning, if we wanted to, and there is an effort amongst a certain subset of scholars today, to return Spinoza to it, what I believe to be his rightful place as a Jewish philosopher, meaning not just a Jew who philosophized, but as an extension in one direction of Jewish thought, again, inside the pale, outside the pale, you guys can probably sense that those are not my issues. Um, but in his time, I think that we perhaps will do best to... Um, leave with this thought, because remember young Spinoza in his struggle as a businessman who really just wanted to be happy. And to dismiss Spinoza as an atheist, as he will come to be labeled, and Spinozaism will replace Averroism in Europe as the sort of like uh, uh, nickname for atheists. Nevertheless, he writes that the absolute goal that he's pursuing is the love of God. 
He just writes that he who loves God cannot strive that God should love him in return. That, that, that life is a deterministic process. And therefore, freedom means understanding why I do what I do and removing all the falsehood, read, emotion, and imagination to have a clarity of understanding the necessity that drives me and to be filled with the, what he calls, scientia intuitive, which isn't just an analytical or descriptive way of knowing, but it's a holistic comprehension, what he calls an unmediated knowledge of God or nature. And it's a deeply felt passion of his that, um, again, one who loves God, which is the goal in his eyes, cannot strive that God should love him in return. Echoes, if you're familiar, the Rambam in the last chapter of Hilchot Tshuva, the Laws of Tshuva, says that um, the highest love of God is doing what's true because it is true. Right? So Spinoza holds a very special place in Jewish thought. He's made a slow return, and there's a lot of work being written about him now. I think for now that's probably a decent presentation, at least of his historical context, if not his actual philosophy. And I'm happy in the last couple of minutes to take any questions or comments people have. Otherwise, we'll wrap it up there. It's like second fiddle. Like nobody knows what happened to one. I'm sure if I did some research, we could find out. But he certainly didn't become a world-famous philosopher. He was excommunicated, yes. If people actually want, I have a, I have a whole list of books. Uh, Spinoza, you guys are welcome to send me an email. There's, what's interesting is you can get his philosophy, you can get his historical context. I also have a great history of the reception of Spinoza, the role that he plays in the next 200 years amongst various Jewish intellectuals and how he influences further Jewish movements. So send me an email, I'm happy to share. He was a hero of the whole Jewish Enlightenment, so there's, it's almost inevitable that he will become a hero of the early Reform Movement. Yeah. Okay, Tov, we'll stop there. We'll pick up next week. If you like that live sound, I encourage you to join me for Jewish Story Live. Picking up once again, August 28th. It'll be every Sunday night, 1 to 2 Eastern Standard, 8 to 9 in Israel. We're going to pick up with the book of Daniel and understand the underpinnings of half of human society. You can find the details, jewishstory.co. Scroll down until you see Access Jewish Story Live. Or you can look up in the upper right-hand corner because Season 6 is coming. And if you want to be a patron, click on that button to give a little bit of per-podcast support. Send me an email for details of both the above, ravmikeboyer.gmail.com. Either way, I hope to see you there. I'm Rob Mike Boyer, and this is The Jewish Story.